This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. We are uh, in the midst of... I don't know, possibly one of the most unique seasons, if not the most unique season in my life. Maybe uh, all of us could say the same. I don't have anything to relate it to. Uh, you know how oftentimes you go through situations in life and you'll say, oh, that was like this. When this happened, it's similar. It has a similar vibe to it. No similar vibe to this. I have, I have no ability to connect this to anything I can remember. This last week was so unusual for me and as a leader I'm I I really desire to be ahead of the curve desire to understand what I'm dealing with to know how to address it and assess it this has been a very very difficult thing for me to know how to lead my family through my uh, church through my my school through and that's good you know in 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 a beautiful way the dependence that comes out of situations like this is just wonderful uh, so I'm just thanking God for this unique opportunity, this odd season. Uh, we are still operational here. For those of you that might be wondering, we're still operational. We have so many limitations on our gathering in Weld County. You cannot have more than nine people in a public space. And, so, and then those people have to be six feet apart. So we have rotations uh, in here. And you sh- if you saw what I was seeing, uh, you guys would all laugh as the students uh, are, are in the midst of it, but they're at least six feet apart in their chairs, sort of spread about the room. Uh, and it's, uh, it's what it is. Uh, and we all are sort of smiling our way through this. And as of right now, in Colorado, there has not been a quarantine or a complete shutdown. So we are still functional, but with a limp, uh, if you could say it that way. However, uh, Audio-wise, we can let this stuff fly. That's the amazing thing. There's no virus uh, disbursement uh, through digital media. Uh, so as a result, we can get close to everyone out there and speak right into their ear and with no threat of infection. Uh, and so isn't that an incredible thought of the technology that we have today? Uh, it's been a long time since I didn't share this. Uh, I, I haven't done a Daily Thunder in a week, and so it was last Sunday where I gave part 18 of my spiritual lessons from World War II series. So it's, it's difficult because I am so desirous to move this series forward, and yet no matter what, uh, I, I was supposed to be gone in, in uh, Tennessee last week. That event got canceled, but then I ended up spending all my energy, mainly on what we're talking about with the coronavirus. You'd think, how could you spend all day long every day on this? It's really hard to explain how, how much time I spent this last week dealing with that. I, this is a very, very interesting message. It's called The Convoy. It's part 19 in this series. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's just sort of this one idea that we all are familiar with. What I'm going to say to you, there is nothing new uh, in this. But at the same time, it's a meditation, I think, that is apropos and just perfectly suited for right now. 
Sorry, my clicker's not on. <coughs> so a convoy, if any of you are familiar with convoys in World War I, World War II, actually convoys have been around for, uh, for decades, uh, I'm sorry, decades, for centuries, but, uh, and I'm gonna dig into what a convoy is at a, at a deeper level because they're very, very significant in naval history. But I'm going to start with a premise point, and that is we have need for each other. And I'm going to say in this title side, it says our strange need for each other. Because to me, you know, we live in, we're, we're in North America. I shouldn't say all of us are North American, but we're, we're, I'm in North America right now. And in North America, there's a certain value system. And independence is a very, very high uh, virtue in our value system. And ironically, throughout history, independence has never actually been something that you brag about. Uh, it is uh, usually a sign of deterioration when you begin to break away from the pack and say, I can do this myself. I can pull myself up from my own bootstraps. In America, we have a very, very high view of that notion, and there are some positive qualities to it. In other words, if no one else around me is willing to stand up for Jesus, I'm still willing to stand up. Praise God. That, if you're going to put a positive spin on independence, that would be it, right? It's the Athanasius Contramundum, as, uh, con as legend would have it. Constantine says to Athanasius back in like around the 300s, uh, he says, the world is against you. Will you not recant, Athanasius? Athanasius was holding to the fact that Jesus was in fact God in the flesh. And so he's being pressured to recant and to turn because the Arian heresy was sweeping through the land and everyone was falling for it except for Athanasius. Athanasius, will you not recant? And then Athanasius, like the world is against you, Athanasius. Well, then Athanasius is against the world, which is Athanasius contramundum. Okay, now that's a positive quality to independence. However, there's a lot of baggage that comes with independence. There's a lot of negatives. And many of us can understand it as we begin to explore what God teaches in the word of God about the body of Christ, about us being one body, about that we're needing to function together. If a hand is independent from the body, it's really not functional. It can't function in the degree or to the degree that a hand is intended to function because a hand needs a wrist and that wrist needs a forearm. That forearm needs an elbow. That elbow needs a, uh, whatever the top part of the arm is called where the tricep and the bicep are. Uh, and then you need a shoulder. You need a torso to be able to hold all that up. When all things work together, that hand is able to do something that it could not do otherwise. I'm actually giving you an understanding of what a convoy is without describing what a convoy is yet and because this is what the word of God speaks and so that's where my title slide a strange need that we have for each other I have I've said this to my church uh, for years before we transitioned out of uh, the uh, the church which is now WCF and we focused just on the campus church again one of the things I would say to the body uh, a lot was I know how to live my life spiritually independent of other people what I want to learn how to do is how to live integrated with other people. I want to learn how to do the body. I, I know how to have my own quiet time with the Lord. I know how to study the scriptures myself. I know how to pray. I don't know how to pray together. I don't know how to do this thing together. I know how to go out and serve. I know how to go out and share the, the gospel with someone personally, but I don't know how to do it with all of you. <laughs> How does this work when we coordinate our limbs? And that's been a deep burden for me for years 
is I want to know body life. I feel like the church of Jesus Christ could change the world. In fact, I don't just think it. I know it. If it were to function interdependent. So the word independent and the word interdependent. Independent, sort of like, hey, you know what? I don't need you guys. I can do this myself. Interdependent. Look, I can have strength in and of myself, but I'm going to lend that strength to you. You lend your strength to me. We work together and we're stronger. So Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7 is going to say, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Isn't that interesting that each one of us, according to scripture, is given a deposit of grace, a gift. But that gift is not given for our own edification. It's actually given to me so that I can build you up. Isn't that an interesting thought that God is giving us very specific things so that we can serve each other? God intended us to work together. He never intended us to just work individually. He knows that we have an individual life and we have an individual relationship. My marriage is my marriage. It's not your marriage, right? And so my children are my children. They're not your children. And yet somehow we're linked. One of the ways that I've oftentimes thought it through in sort of a humorous way is if I were to say, what is your position? It's interesting, but your answer is similar to mine because you could say, I'm in Christ. And what's weird is I'm like, wait a minute, I'm in Christ. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We can't all be in the same place, right? We are. It's called communion. You see, we have a common union. We all step into the same place. We all have believed in Christ, and there we are. What, what are you doing here? Hey, there's not a lot of room in here. We're all sort of together in this. We're all in Christ together. We're knit together, and we become one in Christ. We become a body in Christ. He's the one that provides all the ligament connection. He's the one that shows us, no, you're a hand. No, you're a shoulder. We don't actually choose for ourselves what our role is. He does. And he gives us specific gifts of grace so that we function together in Christ as the body of Christ. It's a beautiful concept, but one that is a mystery to many of us. And since many of us have never seen it modeled, I mean, we gather together as churches, but most of what I could describe in regards to the convoy, we haven't seen it. We've, we've seen it in small bits, but we haven't seen it in its grand glory. So here's the Apostle James, James 2, 14 through 17. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we just talked about the fact that all of us are given gifts of grace for the profit of others, for the profit of many. And then this scripture starts out, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? So that which has uh, a benefit, a true profit to the body is that which is working. So when I am given something, I need to share that. 
And so if God has given me a gift of grace and I don't share it, well, what profit is that? You can say you have faith, but if you don't actually utilize what that faith has brought to your life, if you don't share it with someone who is in need, it says, so if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? In a time like this, we see the propensity and the vulnerability to turning inward, to thinking about ourselves instead of thinking about others. And yet God has given us grace. Yes, that grace strengthens us. Yes, that grace is a tremendous benefit to our life. There's no doubt. But so that we can give it. And so when you would think about that, not just in spiritual strength, but in material strength, you begin to recognize how the body is meant to function. That if I saw that you had need, and I had the means of supplying for that, that I actually should supply for that. Yet that violates something in the North American mindset. I don't know if you guys feel it, but it's just like, whoa, wait a minute, I have to care for me. I have to care for my family. I can't just think about you, because if I think about you, then I will starve my own family. It's a very unique tension that we feel, but it's sort of like the hand only thinking about itself, saying, hey, I have to think about me. And I can't think about the wrist. But if he doesn't think about the wrist, he can't function as a hand. His whole purpose for being is to serve the wrist, the forearm, that upper arm, that, uh, that shoulder, and the rest of the torso, and technically the rest of the body. That hand is meant to be a useful tool for the rest. And if it only thinks of its strength of being used for itself, it doesn't understand what its purpose is, which is to strengthen the entire body and to give it an ability to do things that without that hand it could not do. King Solomon in Proverbs 3, 27 through 28 says, do not withhold good from those whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. So the reason I'm bringing this up now, actually this was originally scheduled to be sometime this week and for whatever reason I felt burdened this morning sort of at the last minute to switch this to my message today where we are designed as a body, if we function individually just as autonomous beings, hey, I don't have anything to do with you, you don't have anything to do with me, I'm thinking about me, you think about you, we're all fine, we actually don't realize what we were created for. And, as you'll see as this unfolds, we become vulnerable to the enemy. The enemy wants to pick off individuals, but he has a very, very difficult time picking off a phalanx, or, uh, as we'll call it in this, a, a, what's the name of my message? I came in, a, a convoy, <laughs> so I lost my word. He can't pick off a convoy very easily. What is a convoy? Boy, I could have just clicked to the next slide and gotten my special word here. I, by the way, I do know what a convoy is, I, even though I couldn't remember the word. So, sorry guys, I don't usually like to quote Wikipedia, but I was having a tough time finding an easy, uh, quick definition for convoy, so th and this is good. A convoy is a group of vehicles, typically motor vehicles or ships, traveling together for mutual support and protection. Often a convoy is organized with armed defensive support. So I have a cool picture here. I'm sorry for all of those of you that uh, are uh, either streaming this right now or getting this via podcast. You're missing this cool picture uh, of, I don't know if this is the Battle of the Atlantic, which was a classic uh, situation for convoys when the, the U.S., was trying to actually start to get supplies over to Great Britain. They had to get them across the Atlantic Ocean. 
And uh, then this is right when the uh, Nazis, the, the Germans are actually creating with their U-boats, which we know as submarines, they're creating these packs. They call them wolf packs. And then they would hunt together to take out convoys. And so, I mean, it's the epic battle that most of us don't focus on when we, when we study World War II. Uh, but World War I, convoys were a huge issue as well because once U-boats or submarines were invented, the, the Germans were wielding them to massive effectiveness. And so what you see in this picture is you have all these massive ships, but then you have this, uh, these Spitfires, these, uh, these British uh, planes that are flying over them, providing cover for them. So, uh, and a ship, each of those are armed ships. And so if, some, if, if a U-boat comes to try and attack one, well, guess what? It's risking a good deal because it, it, that plane is going to see it and, and try and take it out. Also, the other ships are going to fight for each other. And so as a result, this became a very, very effective way of getting uh, ships across uh, the Atlantic as opposed to an isolated one ship coming across could easily be taken out. So this is uh, in Wikipedia. Again, sorry for giving you Wikipedia definitions, uh, but there were a lot of arguments against convoys. It's the same thing that we could have today in regards to the body of Christ. It's like, do we really need each other? Church creates so much hassle Church creates so much drama. And by the way, uh, I know it too. I mean, you don't need to twist my arm to convince me of any of those things. It's very easy to come to the conclusion and say, you know what, how about we just do this by ourselves? I don't think we need to bring other people into this. And so the same thing is true back then. There was a lot of arguments against convoys. Other arguments against convoys were raised. The primary issue was the loss of productivity. As merchant shipping and convoy has to travel at the speed of the slowest vessel in the convoy and spend a considerable amount of time in ports waiting for the next convoy to depart because you can't, this ship is fast and it could just get there. Instead, it has to go at the pace of the slowest ship. And then when it gets to port, it has to wait for the entire convoy to get there before it can leave. It can't just leave on its own. And so it has to go with the convoy. It can't just go on its own pace and its own strength. Welcome to the body of Christ. That is an incredible description of what we face in the body of Christ. I'm ready to run ahead. Instead, I have to hold back and say, okay, well, let's take care of our slowest member. All right, and that's our pace. And now that begins to set the pace. At the same time, there's something beautiful, and that's how family works too. You go on a bike ride, and you don't just you know, go screaming off as all the fast bike, bicyclists. You have to wait for the four-year-old who just learned how to ride his bike uh, to sort of trail on along. And, you know, one of the parents is always in the back, you know, waiting, and everyone's like, come on. <laughs> it's always the slowest bicyclist that sort of defines the pace of the convoy. But this is interesting. Listen to this. Actual analysis of shipping losses in World War I disproved all these arguments. Ships sailing in convoys were far less likely to be sunk even when not provided with an escort. The loss of productivity due to convoy delays was small compared with the loss of productivity due to ships being sunk. And so as a result, when they looked at it, even analytically, scientifically, at the end of World War I, when they were first, inventing, first exploring this idea of mass convoy systems, it's like, that actually worked. That was the secret to dealing with the German U-boat crisis. The convoy, though it is big and bulky, it works. And if any of you have ever just studied the church of Jesus Christ, I tell you what, there is such a vulnerability in modern day church systems where, because it is, it is painful 
to lead the church these days. It is hard. You have a whole bunch of people that have a tendency to lean very selfish, gathering together saying, I want church this way, this is the way I prefer it, this is my doctrine, this is my denomination, this is the way I think, hey, I can't believe you just said that. You just used that one scripture. That, that would mean this to me. I can't believe you said it meant this. You didn't handle this topic the way I think you should. Okay, I mean, it's just like, why am I doing this? How about I just have my private faith over here you have your faith over there, and you know, see ya, I have no interest in dealing with that. It's a great vulnerability that we have in our modern day. At the same time, the convoy, though it is big and bulky, it works. So I'm gonna give another name for this convoy, which is phalanx, which is a military formation, okay? And I'll, I'll, I'll give you at least a, a definition of what a phalanx is. What is a phalanx? A phalanx is a body of heavily armed infantry in ancient Greece formed in close deep ranks and files broadly. A body of troops in close array. So that's from Merriam-Webster. Now look at this picture that I came up with. Now again, sorry for those of you that are streaming this or for those of you that uh, are getting this via podcast. It looks like a whole bunch of armed Greek soldiers uh, with long spears, and they basically are holding them like a porcupine. If you were going to describe it, it's like, who wants to come against that? <laughs> no one wants to come. Could you imagine running into that? I don't want to run into that. And that's the strength of, of a phalanx, is basically you actually create far more of a uh, martial strength in the gathering together of many than you do in the individual one that is holding a spear. And so as a result, you have something very, very stout. So the body of Christ, that's the convoy. That's the phalanx. Jesus Christ is going to say in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. There is something about the gathering of believers. I, if I'd had more time in the prep of this, I was going to actually just focus on the gathering together concept that is in Scripture. And we know that we're not supposed to forsake the gathering of believers and that there's something important about it, but it's interesting that even Jesus is gonna say, you know, when there's a gathering, there's greater strength. We know that we can pray individually and we know that God hears us. I don't think any of us struggle with that, that fact. However, there's something about us gathering together that there is an increased martial military strength that is taking place. So we're gonna to go to spring of 1941 in our World War II unfoldings. And I don't know if this is the first time we've actually entered into 1941. Uh, I think we've been stuck in 1939 and 1940 for an awful long time. And the fact that we're like episode 19 and we're just getting to 1941. And I'm like barely touching the ground. My feet will just like graze the ground in this story. It's a very simple story but it, it shows something that I, it just stood out to me, which is why I'm passing it along. You have, uh, in the beginnings of 1941, the end of 1940, beginnings of 1941, a movement uh, of uh, Italian-German uh, forces into the Middle East. You see the British that are going there to try and preserve their, their territory. And if you were to say, why is that so important? Well, part of it has to do with the Mediterranean. You see, if they're going to sweep around and start to gain uh, the upper uh, quarters of Africa, then on both sides of the Mediterranean, they're going to control, which is very, very significant strategically in, in the world. 
And so uh, for a lot of transport, a lot of goods being transported. So this is actually a very, very key strategic zone. And I don't know if it happened right after uh, World War I, but I think the discovery of oil is going to be a very significant thing also in this territory. And so some of the motives politically are, are very real. Uh, and, but w this would be called the desert flank. And so it's a, it's a very, very significant battlefront for uh, Great Britain to be able to hold uh, off uh, the, the Germans. This is when someone named uh, Rommel, uh, who's a tank leader for the Germans, is going to uh, come in. His name is Erwin Rommel, and he is one of the most famed uh, generals of all time. And even the, the British, like Winston Churchill, respects him highly as a great man, uh, and he, that he's a great general. And so they are on their heels. And so this is a critical uh, time in, uh, war, in the war history, in the war unfolding, but it's taking place in a part of the war that most of us are a little disconnected with, which is uh, sort of that desert theater. So Winston Churchill uh, says this, the beating in, our, in of our desert flank while we were full spread in the Greek adventure was a disaster of the first magnitude. I was for some time completely mystified about its cause, and as soon as there was a momentary lull, I felt bound to ask General Wavell, General Wavell is over all those desert troops uh, in that territory, for some explanation of what had happened. Characteristically, he took the responsibility upon himself. The disaster had stripped him almost entirely of his armor. So General Wavell is down in this territory of northern Africa and the Middle Eastern area, and he's trying to keep everything together, but he's being knocked back really uh, fiercely. Uh, and so when Churchill digs into it, he's like, what's going on? I cannot figure out why we're, we, we have the manpower. Yeah, but we don't have the armored tanks. They're coming in. Rommel's coming in with his tanks, and he's just pushing us back. We can't fight against it. And so as a result, we have a crisis because to get armored tanks in there, they would have to go through the Mediterranean Sea which is extremely dangerous to do. And so what they've been doing is going around the Cape and it takes 40 days to get there. Well, we don't have 40 days to get tanks there. You could lose everything. And if you lose this, you could lose the war. So this is the, the crisis that they're facing in spring of 1941. So April 20th, 1941, we have something that Winston Churchill is gonna call Operation Tiger. Now, if you, if you try and search uh, online for Operation Tiger, you're going to get a different Operation Tiger. So I think this is like off the record Operation Tiger. I'm not sure why Winston Churchill uh, mentions that that's his name for it, but he does. Uh, it, there's another Operation Tiger, which was an exercise for D-Day uh, later in the war that is going to be like a disaster uh, operation. So it's not a very positive one. This is a very positive one. Uh, but uh, April 20th, 1941. So at this date, uh, Winston Churchill is going to receive two telegrams from General Wavell. I received two telegrams from General Wavell, says Winston Churchill, which disclosed his plight in all its gravity. He described his tank position in detail. The picture looked dark. Oh, no. Oh, no. Isn't it nice? The one fun thing about studying World War II is, I mean, it's so dark. It's so bad, but at least we know who wins. I mean, I, I don't know if I've given that away. That's, I'm trying not to give any spoilers in, in this whole thing. But it does give you a little more rest as you go through this because there's so many dark moments in this where it's just like, I don't know how they're going to make it out. And this is a dark moment. So here's uh, General Archibald Wavell, uh, who's down there uh, in the Middle East at this exact time. 
It will be seen that there are only two regiments of cruiser tanks in sight for Egypt by the end of May, and no reserves to replace casualties, whereas there are now in Egypt trained in excellent personnel for six tank regiments. In other words, we have all the guys to run the tanks. We don't have any issues. We have tank drivers. We just don't have tanks. And the, as soon as they're going to be here is the end of May. Remember, we're April 20th right now. I mean, that's 40 days out. I consider the provision of cruiser tanks vital, in addition to infantry tanks, which lack speed and radius of action for desert operations. So now Winston Churchill is going to respond. On reading these alarming messages, I resolved not to be governed any longer by the Admiralty reluctance, but to send a convoy through the Mediterranean direct to Alexandria, carrying all the tanks which General Wavell needed. This is a key moment, okay? So they have all sorts of tanks that are on their way, and they're just about to the, what are called the Narrows, right at the Gibraltar point where you enter the, the Mediterranean. And they're headed down there, and Winston Churchill is like, we need those to go through the Mediterranean. But to do that, would be to possibly lose them all. In other words, if you bring those tanks in and through there, what if they're destroyed? Now we lose everything. I mean, this is high-risk stuff. So we had a convoy containing large armored reinforcements starting immediately around the Cape. I decided that the fast tank-carrying ships in this convoy should turn off at Gibraltar and take the shortcut, thus saving nearly 40 days. Ooh, this is a key moment, guys. Winston Churchill continues, the chiefs of staff were assembled by the time Ismay, General Ismay is over the, he's like the commander in chief uh, of Great Britain's armed forces, reached London and they discussed by minute by minute until late into the night. Their first reactions to the proposals were unfavorable. The chances of getting the motor transport ships through the central Mediterranean unscathed were not rated very high, since on the day before entering the Narrows and on the morning after passing Malta, they would be subjected to dive bombing attack out of range of our own shore-based fighters. The view was also expressed that they were dangerously weak in tanks at home, and that if we now suffered heavy losses in tanks abroad, there would be demands for their replacement and consequently a further diversion of tanks from the home forces. Now, when I read this, and I'll explain it in just a second here, when I read this, I think of us, okay? I'm not thinking about Great Britain and, their, uh, and the desert flank and all that. Technically, I'm thinking about me and my tanks. Because if I'm Great Britain and I see a need out here with my brother, and it's important because I'm associated with him. His successes affect me, right? But you see how the war cabinet is thinking this through. If we give tanks to this, and we take this convoy through the Mediterranean and it gets destroyed, now they're going to ask for more tanks, but we need tanks here. So we would be basically robbing from our own pantry to give to them over there. We can't do that. That's too high of a risk. It's like, be warm and well-fed, Wavell. Just do your best with the limited resources you have, but we can't spare anything from ourselves. Isn't that interesting? You see the tension that is taking place. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that they made a really good decision here. Winston Churchill says, it was settled that this operation, which I called Tiger, should proceed. So that's skipping a lot, by the way, of all the debates and everything that was taking place. But Winston Churchill is going to stick his, his boot down on this. And he's going to say, guys, it's for such a time as this that we have these tanks. Yes, we may risk them. But by not risking them, we risk losing the war. We have to give to our brother in need in that desert flank. I mean, so this is a, you could just imagine the tensions in this. May 8th, 1941. 
the narrow passage. So it takes a while for obviously this to all be taking place because that's April 20th. Now this is uh, quite a few days later that this is taking place, almost three weeks. And, uh, but the, now they're, they're passing Gibraltar on the 6th and on the 8th they're actually coming through what's called the Narrows and they're going to lose their cover. They're, they're, and so they're going to be exposed for this whole stretch of time. And that's what Winston Churchill is going to be referencing here. During the next fortnight, my keen attention and anxieties were riveted upon the fortunes of Tiger. I did not underrate the risks which the first sea lord had been willing to accept, and I knew that there were many misgivings in the admiralty. The convoy, consisting of five 15-knot ships escorted by Admiral Somerville's Force H, passed Gibraltar on May 6th. Air attacks on May 8th were beaten off without damage. During that night, however, two ships of the convoy struck mines when approaching the Narrows. One caught fire and sank after an explosion. The other was able to continue with the convoy. All his forces then shaped their course for Alexandria, which they reached without further loss or damage. Of course, you see the dot, dot, dots in there. I'm skipping quite a few dramas in there just to sort of get to the point. They made it. This convoy made it. They lost a ship, yes, but hey, they made it. And this is like saving 40 days uh, on it. So there's a picture, and if any of you have ever heard me talk about the body of Christ in the past, I've oftentimes used this picture, but it's of the musk oxen, which is uh, a very funny-looking creature and a very odd title for a creature. And anyway, anyways, but I'm going to call this the, uh, an amazing picture of the body of Christ. So I'm going to take an excerpt from the Alaskan Park Service official website talking about musk oxen. No other animal has the defense method of musk oxen. When the danger threatens, they do not run away. Musk oxen are known above all else for their clever defense against wolves or other predators. Look at that. So if you're seeing this via stream without uh, the uh, keynote slides in it or you're getting this uh, via podcast, uh, you're missing a great picture. You have these musk oxen that have their... Their backsides are all connected and they're all facing outwards. So you see three of them in the picture and this is a defense position for the musk oxen. It's like a phalanx. They form naturally. It's like God built them to form into a phalanx. They live in very rugged territory where there's a lot of wolf packs. And a individual musk oxen can easily be taken down by a wolf pack. But a phalanx of musk oxen is nearly impenetrable if not impenetrable. And so as a result, you see them form into this as a God design, which is very fascinating to me. They, they instinctively know to back up into each other and to look outwards and to defend. And it gets even better than that as we progress. But So the excerpt from the Alaskan Park Service official website continues. When they see danger approaching, musk oxen run together and they all try to face the threat. If there is one predator, a lone wolf, for example, the defense strategy is to form a line. If a wolf pack surrounds the group, the musk oxen will form a tight circle, all facing outwards, forming a phalanx of heads and horns. Doesn't that remind you of the Greek formation? It's almost like the Greeks studied the musk oxen. I don't think they did, but it's, it's very similar. Isn't this a great picture? So, now again, I'm sorry for those of you that are hearing this via podcast that you can't see this really cool picture. If you go and Google musk oxen phalanx, I don't know what you'd get. I, I don't remember. I've had this picture for a long time. But what you see is 
Oh, I don't know how many that is. I mean, that must be close to 20 or so uh, musk oxen. And in the middle, they form a circle, and there's, a, there's an empty center point where all the baby musk oxen are. So they're like protected on the inside. I mean, isn't that an incredible picture of the body of Christ? The weak go on the inside, and the musk oxen face, the strong musk oxen face outward to give a defense. But they face it together. Uh, that's, that's, that's amazing. And it's a beautiful picture of something that I don't think we in the North American version of Christianity get. We don't understand that. We were never that little musk oxen in the middle, so it wasn't taught us of what this looks like in a time of great danger, that the stronger ones will surround you and say, we'll take care of you. That, oh, we don't just say, be warm and well-fed, good luck making it through the coronavirus, you know, in your quarantine without food, (laughs) but we say, how can I serve? Here's what I have. This is what I have in my pantry. If you need it in yours, you can have it. My pantry is your pantry. Imagine if we as a church said, our pantry is everyone's pantry. Now, I know that sounds like socialism. Believe me. I mean, I've taught government. I understand. However, there's a spiritual version of government that isn't just, I don't want to just call it socialism. I'm saying it's out of our own will and desire, and it's cheerful giving. It's not mandated giving. It's not like arm-twisted giving. It's not, you know, you'll be thrown in prison if you don't give. It's saying, hey, this is what we do for each other. We're Christians. We stand together as musk oxen, which isn't the greatest compliment to any of us. They're not the most attractive creature in the world, and from what I understand, they smell really bad, which does sound a little like the church at times, doesn't it, if any of you have hung around it, but... It's a, it's a beautiful picture. So this is continued, the excerpt from the Alaskan Park Service official website. Calves will hug next to their mothers or huddle inside the circle. Occasionally one musk ox will charge the enemy but will quickly rejoin the others. If the herd doesn't run but stays together in a tight defensive formation, listen to this. If the herd doesn't run but stays together in a tight defensive formation, Their defense is virtually impenetrable. A musk ox caught away from the herd or separated from the others is much easier to kill. Isn't it interesting? It's just this Alaskan Park Service official website, and they're saying something to us as Christians that is absolutely profound. I mean, yeah. You see, a Christian caught away from the herd or separated from the others is much easier to kill. However, if they don't run, but they stay together in a tight defensive formation. Their defense is virtually impenetrable. That's, that's powerful stuff for us right now. Everything about this coronavirus is asking that we don't gather, is asking that we don't form a phalanx, which creates a unique tension. I was pondering it this week. There's you know five times in the Bible it says, greet each other with a holy kiss. And then it also says, do not forsake the gathering of believers. So it's like, huh? Okay, God, how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to gather and congregate and greet each other with a holy kiss when we can't? And so now we all know that we're going through a time, a blip, but it's interesting because this doesn't change the fact that we need to still stand together. We need to stand shoulder to shoulder, back to back, if you will, and form a phalanx, even if it isn't in the normal way that we're used to. And maybe something like this will teach us 
Because we're not doing that good even when we could greet each other with a holy kiss. I don't know how many of you greet other people with a holy kiss to start with, right? So you could be like, hey, I'm supposed to greet each other with a holy, greet others with a holy kiss. Government, you can't do this. Well, we weren't doing it in the first place. So I don't think we have a lot to complain about. At the same time, I think what it can do is rekindle certain thought processes that maybe we took for granted. How blessed it is for brothers to join together in unity. How blessed it is for us to gather together that we don't take it lightly now. That other countries that have been disbanded and, and uh, kept from being able to gather and where it's illegal to actually have uh, gatherings of believers. And you know we're just like, oh, those poor people. But now we're like, okay, I think I get this at a whole nother level. It's like, praise God for that. This is, uh, if, now I've never given birth to a baby, okay? I just want you all to know that, uh, just in case you're wondering as I talk about this. But I did have to study it. You know, when Leslie was pregnant with Hudson and with, with Abby, uh, I did have to get familiar with this whole process. And there's, like, the, what many people would call false contractions. They're not real contractions is what they'll always be told. But that always, that always bothers me because I was thinking, you know, if, if you're going through a contraction type of feeling, you might as well get credit for it as a real contraction. Why do you have to say it's not real? Because your body is still prepping and is, is, is preparing to deliver a baby, right? So a Braxton Hicks is a real exercise. That's what it's called, a Braxton Hicks contraction. This coronavirus is a Braxton Hicks contraction. This isn't a real challenge for us as the church. It is, just like Braxton Hicks is a real contraction. See, did you notice how I said that? It's like, hey, it's still real. This is very real to us. When you tell a, a, a woman that's having Braxton Hicks contraction, that's not real. She's going to say, uh, it actually is. I'm really feeling something right now. We're really feeling something right now. But God is prepping us for something greater. He wants to awaken us and stir us from our slumber so that we open up our pantry to each other. We learn how to stand together as the body of Christ. We need each other right now. Jesus is going to say in Matthew 14, 15 through 16, when it was, by the way, this first part isn't Jesus, the second part is, but I'll give you the lead in. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Okay, you guys know what we're talking about here. We're dealing with the feeding of the 5,000. And we have a multitude and the disciples are, I mean, they're thinking exactly the way we would. I mean, it's just problem solving, 101. Okay, we got a multitude, they're hungry, so why don't you send them away, Jesus? You're the one in charge, so send them away and they can go get food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, okay, let's, let's take the, uh, the situation. Now, those of you that are in this room are students. You don't even have your own pantry. Well, some of you may have your own pantry in your dorm room, but it's probably fairly limited, and you're staring at it going, it's, it's dwindling. Uh, it's hard to get food right now in a normal sense. I mean, oftentimes, less than I've had to go to three stores. What we have to buy for eight people is a significant amount, and it makes me feel like a hoarder every time I go out to buy something. I, I always get six uh, uh, almond milks every time I go, and I go about two and a half times, so I'd average about three times every eight days or nine days, right? So every three days I'm going, I'm getting about six almond milks. Well, it's limited to three right now in King Supers, and that's even if they have them. So as a result, if I want six, I have to go to multiple stores uh, to get my six almond milks just to be normal in our 
food, and you're like, six almond milks? Yeah, six almond milks, okay? My, my family is a growing family, and I have a whole bunch of kids that do nothing all day long but eat is my <laughs> conclusion on it. And yet, so when Jesus says to me, you give them something to eat, my immediate thought is, I'm having a tough time figuring out where I'm gonna eat, God, let alone feeding them. Wait a minute, pause. Who's the one asking? Can't you see the twinkle in his eye? You see, the one that is asking is where the solution is. It's not in your own personal pantry. It's in his. And we do have something to give right now, even though we feel weak in the process. What we do have, are we willing to open up and unlock our pantry and say, Jesus, this belongs to you. All I have is a few fishes and loaves. That's all I have, Lord. He says, give it to me. You see, with the little that we have as a body, as we bring it to Jesus, I believe we can do something great right now. And I even remember uh, what Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. This is the song. Uh, the man held out his hand for an alm, and this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. So even if you are shortchanged right now, in life and you don't have a lot in your own pantry, you don't even have the fishes and loaves, you just have a blank shelf, you do have something. You have the life of Jesus to give. You have the power of the gospel unto salvation. There is something that we are toting around right now, and even though we have limitations on social, I mean, it could be uh, possible in Colorado that we are actually on lockdown, right? And we can go out to get food, and we can go out for medical care if we needed it. And that's you know, a rather dull version of living. And yet we still have something to give. And we need to pray and ask God to give us opportunities even in these strange limited windows. Matthew 25, 42 through 45, a familiar uh, statement uh, in the sheep and the goats passage. Jesus speaking, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. This is a reminder message Yes, it's called the convoy. It's a World War II spiritual lesson, right? But this is our world right now. We live in a time where we need to work together, even though we're told to be six feet apart. We can still work together. There is still a way that God is wanting to work through this. Remember my message from two weeks ago, the Hobbelar? God has his military answer for every circumstance. He's not caught off guard going, oh, I don't know what to do. God knows exactly what to do. It doesn't matter. Even if this was all an entire scheme and conspiracy of some band of Illuminati characters to somehow shut down the church, it's not gonna shut down the church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Fact, no weapon fashioned against us shall prosper. Fact, greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Fact, if God be for us, who can stand against us? Fact, we're believers. And right now, we have a job to do. We need to know how to stand together. Even though we have limitations for that, let's allow God to teach us. 
Every underground church throughout history has had solutions to every problem they've ever faced. I remember one of my favorites, I don't remember if this was in China or if this was in Romania. I just remember it, I, I heard it when I was growing up. And I've actually practiced it, by the way, in, in one situation in my life, it's pretty cool. But they would not give the address for where the meeting for the underground church meeting would be uh, to anyone lest it fall into hands because they didn't know who was a spy. And so everyone would ask the Holy Spirit to lead them to the location. And they would all congregate at that location. So I, I remember I was in Michigan, I was teaching a class, and we were supposed to be visiting uh, one of the families of our students, and I was with my sister, and we came to a fork in the road, and this is in the days where you didn't have GPS, and all you had was an address, and I had no idea where to go. Uh, and, we, and so we stopped, and I pulled off to the side of the road, I go, okay, well Chrissy, um, remember that one story? Because we had heard it together, and she's like, yeah. It's like, well, if the Holy Spirit can lead the underground church to a place, I, I'm thinking he could just lead us to this house. So we both prayed, turn left, turn right, turn left, turn right, turn left, and the, the little girl was out in her yard playing, and we just pulled up right there, and it was like, okay, that just happened. So hey, look at that, that's even a modern tale of sort of the supernatural in a situation that didn't even need this, you know, anything dramatic, right? It's just like Eric trying to get to a student's house. God cares about small details. And if you're interested in being a vessel of love right now and a communicative uh, dis distribution vehicle for his kindness, his gospel message, he can make a way, even in the midst of such a time as this. Our final uh, scripture for this message, 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Father, we want that in us. We want the love of God to be shed abroad in our hearts afresh today that we would be thinking about each other and not about ourselves. Lord, give us wisdom for how to care for our own circumstances. We do need that right now. All of us that are listening to this via podcast or streaming this, even those of us in this room. But Lord Jesus, may we be specialists in considering the needs of others above ourselves. Lord, this is unto you for your glory, for your honor, and for your praise. We love you so much. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.